I had to have tortillas sent to me in cans, canned corn tortillas in brine. That, that will dement your mind. You know, that will and your stomach. You're listening to the Happy Doc Student Podcast, a podcast dedicated to providing clarity to the often mysterious doctoral process. Do you feel like you're losing your mind? Let me and my guests show you how to put more joy in your journey and graduate with your sanity, health, and relationships intact. I'm your host, Dr. Heather Frederick, and this is episode 76. Today, I welcome back a very special guest, Dr. William Memo Noriccio. And if you haven't already listened to our chat on scholarly writing in episode number 58, you're definitely going to want to check that out. Bill was born in Laredo, Texas, and educated at the University of Texas, Austin, and Cornell University, where he completed his PhD. He is currently a professor of English and Comparative Literature at San Diego State University, where he directs the Master of Arts in Liberal Arts and Sciences program and serves on the faculties of Chicana, Chicano Studies, and Latin American Studies. In today's episode, we venture into concepts of diversity, inclusion, and creating safe spaces as he shares his story of survivorship as a Chicano doctoral student in comparative literature on the East Coast. Bill, welcome back to the show. I'm always thrilled to be here. Can I come to your show weekly? (laughs) You can be a regular guest. I would like that. I would like that. So what are we going to talk about today? What's the burning issue today for all your listeners? So I was so excited when we got on before we started recording and you were open to talking about anything today because I shared one thing that I've been wanting to broach, but just haven't had the right guest is this idea of being in graduate school and being different, underrepresented, perhaps is the right word. We were talking before we started recording and I said, I think maybe one of the reasons I've been reluctant to record this is nowadays, I don't even know what the appropriate terms are to use. There's some hesitation on my part in asking a question or saying something that could be offensive without that being the intent. So you shared that you were going to school on the East Coast And you had a very distinct experience being a Chicano on the East Coast. And I thought, let's start with your story and then see where that unfolds and brings us. Yeah, I'd I'd love to to talk about it. I mean, in this sense, like other graduate students, present graduate students, practicing professors, I'm a survivor. PhD programs and some competitive master's programs are designed to weed folks out. For instance... In my cohort, I was in a PhD program in comparative literature. I think I'm the, I may be the only one from my cohort who's presently working as a professor in a university. The rest either were pushed out, and I mean that, pushed out, or dropped out. I had a colleague in my cohort, but in the English department, who was a Mexican-American from Southern California. And he had a professor, and this was one of the editors of the Norton Anthology, tell him at the end of the semester, you write really well for a Mexican. And he dropped out. He dropped out the next year. He, he just burned out. 
And that's that's an example of, you know, people say, I don't believe in this systemic racism. But yeah, it's built into the system. And, and it's not even the system. It's the individuals who have inculcated this worldview. I mean, first of all, literature professors are not the most generous, amiable, empathetic people in all the world. You know, I, I, I think half of us are sociopaths, you know, like, <laughs> or psychopaths or burnouts. And so sensitivity to the needs of our student isn't the first thing that's going to, you know, come to mind. So when I got to Ithaca, I was totally freaked out. I, I, I was a, a scholarship boy. I'd gone to the University of Texas and Austin was pretty, pretty diverse, though I was in an English program. And English programs are preternaturally Caucasian. <laughs> somewhat all, homogeneous. Uh, somewhat, somewhat, somewhat. And as an English major, for whatever reason, I was focused on, I, I started my junior and senior year to really gravitate towards Latin American literature. So I should have been in the Spanish department. But no, I wanted to do it from English and comp lit. So already I was gravitating towards what, what I told you pre-interview, you know, the, the status of the bizarre unicorn, right? The, the Chicano in a largely homogeneous English department. And then when I got to, to Cornell, it was, it was just, it was culture shock. I'm from South Texas where it's 117 degrees in August, which thanks to global warming, everybody will be enjoying soon. And I went to Ithaca, where if you're walking on the quad in December and you your eyes blink, you can hear the ice crystals crack. You know, these are existentially bizarre things for a for a Chicano. But the other thing on the East Coast, there are no there were no Chicanos. I people just presume because I spoke Spanish that I was Puerto Rican, you know, or Cuban or, you know, some East Coast species of of Latino. I had to have tortillas sent to me in cans, canned corn tortillas in brine. That, that will demit your mind, you know, that will, and your stomach, you know? So I was alienated. I was alone. I, I was suffering from what most graduate students feel, which is that they don't have the goods. And I was surrounded by people who had the goods and in my mind acted like it and you know, there was a strutting around like this was their milieu and I knew it wasn't my milieu. So the self-doubt crept in. By the end of my second year, I had four incompletes and I, I was probably going to lose my funding. And I remember it was the November of 85 that I just sat down and I, I wrote for a month straight. I just went to, the, we had a computer lab. And I would get up at five in the morning and I'd just go there and I would write until two in the afternoon. And I did that for a month. I knocked out all my incompletes and I said, I'm going to get a job. My background's working class. So I wasn't going to let all the money that they were. I went there for nothing, right? I didn't have to pay tuition. I had a stipend, I had full support and I had that working class guilt. Well, I better work for my money. And so I got my act together, but it was, a, it was cold. It was alienating. It was uninviting. Several of my professors were, you know, pricks and somehow I, I survived. So moving forward through my career, I've always tried to remember that initial freak out 
from graduate school. And it wasn't all bad. Of course, I had mentors that supported me. And you never want to underestimate the support of your colleagues in a cohort. I understand why it's been so hard for graduate students during COVID because there's no cohort. You know, the way you survive are the conversations that happen when the professor leaves the room and you walk and have a beer or coffee with your colleague because those moments have been gone. We just turn off, I'm out of my Zoom and I'm here with my cat, right? Like, who do I talk to about the fact that I feel like a failure? Or who do I talk to about the fact that I don't think I got the goods, that I'm dreaming of quitting? You know, there's no rapport, there's no feedback. And so anyway, I, I don't know if I'm talking about what I'm supposed to be talking about. That's where my mind is at, right? Well, you brought up a number of things I would love to spend some more time on. So the first was you mentioned you moved from Texas, you went to the East Coast, and you found it uninviting. You had a culture shock. There was the weather. There was that whole thing. I came from Southern California, went to Massachusetts for my graduate work. So I had the cold thing, too. While you were talking about the East Coast, I distinctly remember coming as a Southern Californian and so excited to befriend my peers and everyone seeming so cold and standoffish to me. And so I invited some of my cohort over to my place. And after a couple of glasses of wine, I said, hey, it feels like people aren't as nice here. Nobody smiles. You're, you're walking across campus and someone catches your eye and you smile and they don't smile back. They just look down and they're like, well, yeah, if someone smiled back at me, that would be weird. Right? There was like this, there was this East Coast, West Coast thing that was transcending any sort of racial ethnic group. And they said, but here's what you need to know, Heather. Once you're in, we will be loyal with you till the end. And I do have friends that I went through school with, but it was that we're still friends today. But it was one of those things that I didn't expect. So here I am, not a Chicana on the East Coast, and you're recollecting some of your experiences. And I remember very much feeling unwelcome and that it was uninviting. So I think that's interesting. Yeah, my closest friend turned out to be this beautiful man, this uh, a gay man from England. He's passed away recently, Andrew Hewitt. And we were uh, inseparable. Oddly enough, a Chicano from South Texas and a Brit from England. We were uh, co- we co-unicorned. We, we were even talking about... Uh, we were going to infiltrate a fraternity, try and, and, and infiltrate a fraternity and then write a piece, a collaborative piece on our adventures as first year frat boys. And he was my refuge and, and, and my salvation. We were also very competitive against each other. We drove each other. He was incredibly patronizing as only a British person can be. And he upped my game significantly. And. He was never respectful of me being minority or anything. He just, he just saw me as a, as a mate and it was healthy, healthy for me, I think, to hang out with him and, and kind of steal some of that, I I guess that colonizer's mentality, you know, it's a really funny thing because I'm one of these minorities who never had a minority experience until I left home. Because Laredo is 99% Mexican-American. I didn't grow up with a minority consciousness. Everybody was Mexican. 
But even even the gringos were Mexican because they had to speak Spanish or they would not they would not thrive. Laredo's a, a business town, import export. And so everyone spoke Spanish because it was in their interest to do so. So anyway, when I got to first UT Austin, I began to experience the minority consciousness thing. And then in Ithaca, I guess I was intellectually developed enough so that I was able to fight it. Because you do have to fight it when you feel, when you internalize the anticipation of failure, you have to find the will to fight it. And at that moment, you, I know with identity politics, you might think, well, you're in solidarity with your, with, with your community. And that certainly can help you. But in grad school, the thing that's going to help you is solidarity with your field. You have to publish. You have to go to conferences. You have to do the work of looking like a scholar. And then you wake up one day and boom, you are. It sounds like having the support is huge. Yes, the support, the support of, you know, but also the support of people who don't pander to your shit. You know, we, especially in the humanities, we have, we have a tendency to romanticize and turn our suffering into an epic. And we're really articulate at doing that. But what we don't realize is that we hurt our, our progress in the process because we're so taken with the story of our put upon itness that we don't, we don't finish. You know, we drop out or we, we say it can't be done or there's no jobs on the market, which is the latest thing, right? There's no jobs in the humanities. The books are over. The humanities are dead. And, you know, no, no, we've never needed more articulate writers in the era of fake news. We need incisive critics. We need dramatic intervention by people for whom words matter. And that that cuts across fields, not just literature. We need great sociologists. We need great people in management who are not just focused on profit in the next quarter. That mentality, which drives everything, the neoliberal economy is killing, killing culture. And we're either going to wake up to it or Putin's going to put a thermonuclear bullet through our head. (laughs) Well, let's be optimistic. Yes. Here. And I want to go back to a little bit more this relationship with Andrew, because you said something really interesting. You said something along the lines of he didn't care how you were presenting, that you came with darker skin. You were just a mate. Yeah, we were mates. I, I I don't think his ghost would be mad at me. It probably will. I look. I mean, I'm tentative because his ghost might come screw with me for sharing things. But he didn't have the easiest. I mean, you would think Brit ruling class, colonial. No, no. He came from very humble circumstances, working class in England, and raised himself up to become. What anyone on the outside looking in would say, oh, wow, he just walked off the set of Downton Abbey, right? And not the butlers. I'm talking about the ruling class, but he wasn't. He was working class. And I, I, I couldn't read those signs. You know, I'm a typical dumb American. I can't read class the way the Brits do and, and the way Mexicanos from DFA do. I couldn't read that. I just thought, oh, I heard the accent. Oh, jolly good. He must be a friend of the queen, you know? And so both of us were kind of like misfits who had overachieved. We were very aspirational, very intellectual. That's the one thing we had in common, I think. You, you can't be 
This is something I tell my grad students, you like this. You can't apologize for being an intellectual. Now, we're in the United States where intellectuals are the butt of every joke in mass culture. You can't turn on a sitcom without an, you know, I was just thinking about the guy in Friends, but this Ross, you know, an insufferable intellectual, right? They're insufferable, they're pedantic, they're narcissistic, you know, and that's true of, I mean, we know that's true of a lot of professors, but most of us are just here to help. I was saying this the, the other day, I was giving a lecture in San Jose, you know, we're here to provide the terrain for individual epiphanies. And that includes self-discovery, but it's more basic than that. It's about the epiphany of discovering something new in your field that you're going to share with others, right? And I was telling my grad students, we have a paper due. And they want to know how many, how many references should they have in their paper. And I said, well, 10 would be good for a 15-page paper, but 20 is more better. <laughs> and I told the undergrads, three is enough. But you know, if you only use three, I'm going to look down my nose at you, you know, with my pompous English professor worldview. So... I don't even know how I got started on this. <laughs> the theme here is if you're in graduate school, you like to think about things. This whole intellectual kind of thread that's running through curiosity, wanting to know how things work, wanting to make a difference, wanting to create something that's never been created before. And so maybe that's a way that if we focused on kind of uniting there, these other things about us, like you mentioned, you didn't know Andrew had come from the working class. There's things that we can't see that when we're in graduate school, we could look alike, but be very, very different. We could look different and be very, very much alike. And maybe the common ground is just this thirst for knowledge. Yeah. The woman who really helped me with that was one of my mentors. She was my mentor at UT Austin and a nemesis at Cornell. Isn't that odd? As, as my undergraduate professor, she opened the world of academe to me. At Cornell, she was like my antagonist. She was always discontent with my work. She talks about in her written work and her teaching work, she used this phrase, strategic essentialism. Uh, essentialism, of course, is one of the, you, you think of it a bad thing, maybe. Like, oh, he's a corporate essentialist. All he believes in is the bottom line of profit. But what she was talking about were post-colonial Indians. And that is that in order to survive the hegemony of colonization, that the agents, that is the colonized subjectivities, had to had something called strategic essentialism, which would mean that you had a, a kind of tactical view of your, let's say, of your identity. I'll speak about myself. I'm not always a Chicano. Sometimes I'm a guy who's drinking beer, watching an NFL game. I'm not a Chicano when I'm doing that. I, I'm still Chicano. I'm still a Mexican-American. But sometimes I'm just screaming at the TV and it has nothing to do with that. And was for me salvation, that I could be 
a scholarship boy, a walking example of Mexican-American success in a country that doesn't really respect that. But I could also just be myself, a second year graduate student in an Ivy League school trying to survive the rat race. You brought up the word curiosity. Maybe this is a good time to show something what i mean because these are all theories and experiences and anecdotes and I, I guess i'd like to show and i'll talk to your listeners but i'll show your viewers on youtube okay i'm not discriminating against you listeners i love your ears okay but i'm going to show uh, just a couple of quick examples of how my graduate program sorry for all the sounds in the background okay so what you would see Dear listener, if you were watching on YouTube, which you must, you must, is the corporate, all universities are into university branding. So they forced me to have a standard issue webpage for the MOLUS program, my interdisciplinary studies program at SDSU. And you could see the top of the page is all standard issue stuff, SDSU, Master of Arts and Liberal Arts. But then I got to design the page and I'm a graphic artist. So the first thing you'll see is I'm using like Soviet era iconography. I've got Black Lives Matter. I've got a Chicano power flag. And that's so that anyone who comes looking for interdisciplinary studies and lands here will feel at home. There's a mesh of word and image. And what is Mollus? Mollus is the MA in curiosity, right? But the actual page that I designed for our program is much more eclectic. And now, dear listener, I cannot do this page justice. You know, uh, you land on the Mollus homepage and there's robots dancing. There are light bulbs floating in space. There are walking digital men. There's a giant eye. The background actually comes from Jack Kirby, a cartoonist. This is a, a dot design that is associated with Marvel Comics explosions, right? This is my program. This is how I invite people to our program. And I would say half of the students that come into our program, they come in because of the webpage. So this is just an example of how we make people feel welcome and how other other listeners of yours who are running graduate programs, you actually have to fight against the bureaucratic man to, or woman because they're there out there to ensure that the program that you believe in is the program that you're giving to the world. So I try to do that both in the corporate side and our personal departmental side. So Bill, I just want to let all the listeners know, I'm going to have the links below so they can conveniently see everything that you just described. But I'm curious, how much of your experience that you had on the East Coast do you think informed or was the catalyst for wanting to create a program where regardless of where you've come from, you feel like you're at home? I've never thought of that. Yeah, you know, it's more my experience at the University of Connecticut, my first job. That's where I really didn't feel at home. Maybe it's that. Oh, my God. You're like Freud. I did not feel welcome in uh, Connecticut. I have some dear friends there. If you're listening, I still love you. But that, that was horrible. That was horrible. We were having layoffs of, of staff. And one of my colleagues thought it'd be funny 
to give every professor in the department their own new job. And my job was to run the taco cart outside of the building, you know, like, ha, 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 he's Mexican, he'll sell tacos. And I'm a damn good cook. I make a damn good taco, but screw him. That was horrible. It was all this racism in Connecticut because there the English department was like old school white boys. And, and, and then I did crazy things like kick Shakespeare off a masterworks list and put, you know, Chicano cartoonists in my class for the modern novel. Oh my God, you would, you would have think I spat on their grandmother's grave or something. These men were so deep and I love my Shakespeare, but they were so deeply wedded to the idea of Shakespeare with a capital S. I was teaching Toni Morrison and Merico Paredes and Gilbert Hernandez. Again, it's like I sold their mothers down the river. That's how they were acting, to use an inappropriate but apt analogy. So, Bill, it's interesting because when I think about the quote-unquote ivory tower, even though it's a place where you go to generate new ideas and learn new things and create, what you just explained was that you were being disruptive and it was not welcome. Well, yes. And it was the age of cannon busting. You know, my whole generation of scholars, ethnic American, gay, lefty, every flavor, we were deeply invested with making the foundations of truth with a capital T shudder. We were deeply invested in shaking up things, and, you know, we're one of the first generation of scholars that were post-Vietnam. I, I was nine or eight or seven, you know, when the Vietnam War was coming to a, a close. We were the generation after. And we were convinced or we knew that universities were part of the power structure. And it was our job to make it shudder and to change it, to embody change, to embody uh, a new kind of dynamic. And I know I brought that to my classes and I was brash and I was loud. And I was young. I was 26 years old. You know, I met you when I was 29. At UConn, I was 26. I was a baby. And that this baby, Mexican, was changing the order of things. Oh, my word, what a barbarian. You know, it was like, it was scandalous. It was really scandalous. That said, my undergraduates loved it. We had so much fun. It was, it's from my students. I've always received the most sustenance. The more, I mean, I sometimes think I'm a vampire. You know, during COVID, I swear, look at, look at the gravy. You could see it. I aged like 10 years in two years. You know, I swear I had all my hair color before COVID. And it just went gray because I wasn't around young people anymore. So in, the, in that regard, I think professors are like, human vampires. We, we thrive off the energy of the next generation. And some of us are really dedicated to bringing them into the party. You know, others are gatekeepers. It's, it's infamous among Chicanos. There are Chicano gatekeeper professors who keep other Chicanos out. I, I made it my role from a very early age to just be the antithesis of that. Like, I'll be the latter. I'll be the latter for you. And I have probably 25 mentees who are PhDs now, you know, and, and that's from SDSU. We don't even have a PhD program. I mean, folks like you. Yeah. You were my first mentee who became a professor. When you talked about getting energy from 
the students. I think that's a hallmark of a good professor, of a professor who inspires and engages and a professor who can create an inclusive environment. I'm just wondering, do you have any off-the-cuff tips for people out there, whether you're a student who's going to be in a position of creating an environment for an up-and-coming student, or maybe you're an administrator or a faculty member, what would you have liked to have said back to the faculty when you were in graduate school? What would you have liked them to know about your experience and how they could have been more supportive? It's funny, I was talking about this this morning because I'm working close with my English graduate program. I have my own grad program, but I'm an English professor and I've been kind of at arm's length with my own department. But what we were talking about was, especially with COVID, our graduate students don't know guild rules. I always talk about grad school of being like a guild, like young monks apprenticing under old monks who teach them the inner workings. Well, this COVID generation of graduate students, God love them. They don't even know that they don't know the guild rules. And the reason they don't know the guild rules is that once Zoom shuts off, there's none of that conversation in the hallway. There's none of that conversation over drinks. It's where we vent, we let down our hair, we get our panties out of a bunch. All of those metaphors happen over coffee, over beer, over arguments, sometimes with our professors. That was the other thing. That, that's gone now. I guess the thing that I would have valued more were just to see efforts. Even if they don't go, you know, which they don't anymore, invite your students to join you at art openings. Or if you're giving a, a lecture locally, invite them to it. The social dimension of the intellectual for me is everything. And I think it's the thing we do worse. I think that a lot of us have no grace or social skills and that we alienate the very people we are paid to mentor. And if we're not deeply invested in the guild, in this thing that we do, we'll get out of the way because there's thousands of PhDs who are not being hired and you burnouts just need to quit. Do you hear me? Quit. A lot of old farts need to get out of the way and stop hurting people. If we did that, I think Chicano, Black, trans, they'd all thrive. They'd all thrive. I think this idea of just making an effort really struck me. It's so simple, but so profound. If you just make an effort. Yeah, and you've got to be brave, too, because other folks aren't going to like it. I brought wine to seminar once, and this woman turned me into the president. Uh, the week that my tenure was on the president's desk, so it was really bad timing for me to indulge in being friendly. I, I taught by candlelight in a seminar room. I took all my graduate students out for these performance artists that were on SDSU's campus. It was quite a scene because they were, were doing this ritualistic dance nude with candles and, oh my God, you know. Sometimes you have to take people out of their safe space in order for them to know it's safe to be human. And once you establish that trust with your students, you have no idea how, how far they'll go. You know, they just need to know that people believe in them, but they don't know that if you don't let your hair down. 
it's a tricky razor's edge. And I have to say, you know, post Me Too, cuidado, be very careful, be very respectful. The thing I've learned, I have sort of a sense of humor. I don't know if listeners can tell. Your jokes don't always land. Funny, not everyone likes funny. In fact, some people are, you know, terrified of funny. And so you got to move very slowly, very carefully, and with a lot of sensitivity. And I think that's a key point. Being courageous, but walking this fine line of saying, hey, I'm human, you're human. I want to create a safe space for you. Maybe part of it is, humility in acknowledging you're not sure if you're still walking the fine line. I want to create this space. These are the things I'm about. I I want you to be able to trust me. Let me know when I cross the line. Let me know when you don't feel safe. If we could just have those conversations. I know personally, sometimes it feels like it's easier to just not have the conversation and err on the side of being conservative. But that's probably what leads to burnout and lack of engagement with students. It just becomes so vanilla. It does. It does. Humility is the the last thing you're going to find from a lot of professors in arts and letters and the humanities. And yet, without it, we don't have the flexibility we need to engage and, dare I say, inspire the next generation of graduate students. I really believe that All we're supposed to do is to clear the way for magnificent epiphanies. And if we can just get out of the way with kindness and insight, then we've done our bit as professors. Okay, so this may end up on the cutting room floor, but if you could go back and talk to you (sighs) at 26, (laughs) what would you say? Move slower. Don't try to change the world so fast. But no, see, I'd hit him. I would shut up. You don't know what the hell you're talking about. Time's a wasting. We got to change things. We got to move things. Foucault taught us that universities were part of the colonized, well, and Said, Edward Said, taught us that universities are part of the problem. If anything, we're the mid-level managers that assure conservative continuity but we don't have to be and we can't times of wasting and the the encroaching corporatization via ai of the world is going to make this a really boring and oppressive country and so i i think i'd go back and tell him thank you thank you for surviving thank you for trying Thank you for trying to break things in ways that benefited students. Students first, guild second. Students first, because they don't have our paycheck. They don't have our credentials. They don't have the sanity and sanctity that tenure provides for us. So the least we can do is provide a playground, an intellectual playground for their discovery. And so I, I think I'd go back and I'd tell him, good job. Just keep doing what you're doing. Just, just keep on keeping on. Yeah, I haven't learned a thing. I'm still that, I'm still that guy. I'm just, you know, grayer hair and uh, move a little slower. Well, Bill, thank you so much for spending time with us again today. And I can't wait to have you back. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. And dear listeners, thanks for listening.
and check out the YouTube. Yeah, hit the links. Thanks so much for listening. And I look forward to connecting with you on the next episode. Until then, I'm wishing you more joy in your journey. The Happy Doc Student Podcast is brought to you by expandyourhappy.com and you can learn more there. Hey, one more thing, just a quick reminder that the information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only.